All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Hey guys, and welcome to Your Brain on Science. I'm really excited to have you here with me today. We're going to finish up with part two of the Hype or Hope miniseries with some much needed hope. So let's get right into it. Welcome back, everyone. Happy to have you here. I hope everyone's doing well. I personally am drowning in the amorphous pit. That's my fourth year of grad school now, uh, but I digress. Um, so today we're going to follow up on the first episode in the Hyper Hope miniseries, which was the hype episode, episode three, where Elena did an amazing job of pointing out to us all the ways in which the hype and sensationalism uh, surrounding psychedelics and the use of psychedelics in psychiatric treatment can be very problematic. Um, we talked about some of those crazy articles that we see in the media with almost clickbait-like titles, right? It becomes really easy to see why people start viewing psychedelics as a sort of panacea or a cure-all when you're getting media coverage of that sort of nature. We know that psychedelics are not a cure-all, right? You guys have been listening to us for a few days now, um, for a few episodes now, I should say. Uh, psychedelics are not a cure-all, but we are obviously here on a psychedelic science podcast for a reason. And that reason is that there is huge potential for the use of psychedelics in a clinical setting therapeutically and perhaps even in other ways. And of course, there's a ton of investigation underway, so I don't have too much to say about all of that stuff, but hopefully in the future I do. But I'm here today to tell you that there is a ton of hope when looking to psychedelics, um, and we really see this with recent clinical trials and some of the work coming out of the basic science that's getting bigger now too. We really are on this journey to understanding what there is to these drugs and these compounds. And today we'll talk about some of these research-based findings and why I think we really should have hope. So all of the studies that I talk about today are going to be linked in the accompanying blog post. So if you want to pause me right here and pull that up so you can look through as I talk about them, that would be really cool and a little bit easier for you guys to follow too, because I'm not going to delve into the measures and really any of the statistics here. So if you have some questions, feel free to pull up those articles and uh, look through them with a little bit more of a critical eye as we taught you guys to do in episode two, right? <laughs> so let's get right into it. So we're going to get started by talking about psychedelics in clinical science. So some of the big clinical, modern clinical findings, and I say modern because back in the day, back in the 60s, you know, there was some work being done. There were some investigations underway about these compounds, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, although with the DEA crackdown and sort of this war on drugs, all of that was halted. And even the work back then might have been a little less rigorous and a little less controlled. Um, so we're just going to talk about these modern findings. And if you guys are interested in some of the older work, we talk about it in one of our previous blog posts. And of course, the internet is there for you guys and let us know if that's something that you're interested in. And we can talk about more classical uh, research into psychedelics. But I digress again, so let's get right back into it. Um, so we're going to talk about some of the uh, first big modern clinical findings, or big maybe headline-making findings, I should say. And these really came from studies looking at the effects of psychedelics on depression and anxiety in patients with terminal diagnoses. Um, so terminal diagnoses meaning you have X amount of time to live, right? Uh, so I'm going to begin with this one really big Johns Hopkins study that did just that. Uh, they looked at the use of psilocybin in the treatment of depression and anxiety in terminally ill patients. And I think it was specifically um, individuals who had a terminally 
a terminal cancer diagnosis. So this was a double-blind trial, meaning both the clinician and the patient didn't know what drug group they were assigned to, whether it was placebo or the active drug psilocybin. Um, and they used a low placebo-like dose of one or three megs per 70 kegs, and also a high dose of psilocybin, which was 22 or 30 megs per 70 kegs. And these doses, this, the psilocybin, was administered in two sessions, with five weeks in between these two sessions, and then there was a six-month follow-up. Uh, during this time, during the sessions, during the six-month follow-up, uh, there were uh, clinician-rated and patient ratings of uh, the patient's symptoms. So there were various depression and anxiety scales that were used at this time, and both the clinicians and the patients reported back on their observations of the symptoms and changes in symptoms. So basically what we saw was that with the high dose psilocybin group, there was large decreases in clinician and self-rated measures of depressed mood and anxiety, significant decreases as compared to the placebo group, um, along with increases in quality of life, life meaning, optimism, and also significant decreases in death anxiety. At the six month follow-up, these changes were sustained with about 80% of the participants continuing to show clinically significant decreases in depressed mood and anxiety. Interestingly, in all of this, uh, the mysticalness or the mystical type psilocybin experience on the session day, so the day that they were given the drug, actually mediated the effect of psilocybin dose on the therapeutic outcome, meaning the qualitative experience really mediated uh, the therapeutic and behavioral outcome which is very interesting, right? <laughs> now, this study came out in 2016, and this was a trial in a very unique population. Um, it was with terminally ill patients, but these results are, are very compelling, right? These are nothing short of astounding, at least to me. And in the same year, the Carhart-Harris Group published an article about their open-label trial. We just talked about a double-blind study, and this, at, in comparison to that, was an open-label trial the people enrolling for the study, the participants and the clinicians in the study knew, were aware of the drug that they were receiving. They were aware of the drug, and I do believe they're, they were aware of the dose as well. Uh, so this study used a moderate or a high dose of psilocybin, so moderate being 10 megs or high dose being 25 megs. This was done across two dosing sessions. Um, they found that according to the standard criteria for determining remission on the BDI, and remission would be considered having a score of less than nine on the BDI. So based on these criteria, 67%, uh, eight out of 12 of the uh, patients, which is 67%, achieved complete remission at one week. And seven patients, 58%, continued to meet criteria for remission at three months, with five of these, 42% of these patients, still in complete remission. Anxiety was also significantly reduced at one week and three months post-treatment, as well as anhedonia scores for one week and three months post-treatment. Anhedonia actually refers to a symptom very commonly found in both depression and anxiety, uh, in which patients are unable to get any pleasure out of seemingly pleasurable things or just life in general. Um, and there was a significant decrease in anhedonia scores at one week and three uh, months post-dosing. So these were, I think, two of the really big landmark studies, right? Two of the big first studies that propelled psychedelics back into the forefront of psychiatric research and in the world, really, because a lot of the headlines at the time 
uh, sort of revolved around these studies. And if you turn on Netflix, you turn on, tune into any of those documentaries, I bet you there's going to be like a headline or two or a scene or two from the Johns Hopkins study and um, some of the outcomes from this 2016 Carhartt-Harris study. So I think two of the really big landmark studies that everyone should uh, tune into and read about and, and sort of know about. So since then, there have been numerous registered clinical trials using MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, and ayahuasca in the treatment of anxiety and depression. Now, I want to stop here really quickly, and I want to harken back to Elena's hype episode, where she cautions us to remain critical and, and wary, right? Uh, because yes, I did just share some amazing results with you guys. But again, these were in one, a highly controlled clinical setting with very specific protocols in place. And two, they, were, they weren't across the board 100% effective for everyone in the trial. Right, antidepressants and other medications, along with cognitive behavioral therapies, do work for some people, just like psychedelics work for some other people. Um, in fact, there's only been one study done looking at a head to head comparison of the effects of psilocybin and an antidepressant called escitalopram, and the results were pretty meager, I would say. I don't know. Um, we really didn't get too much out of it. There wasn't a difference between the groups, but I will say that that study design and the comparisons and some of the statistics there needed a lot of improvement. So it's hard to draw a clear conclusion um, other than more work needs to be done. But even with some critical thinking checkpoints here, we just stopped here, right, to think about all these things. Uh, these results coming out of these clinical studies for psychedelics and psychiatric treatment are a very, very hopeful thing. So not only this, but I want to sort of change direction and uh, look at psychedelics for a different class of indications. Uh, there have been some significant results in clinical trials of substance use disorder treatment. I'm going to start with this one study over at NYU. Michael Bogenschutz and Stephen Ross just published results uh, from their study looking at the effects of psilocybin on alcohol dependence, which, by the way, treatment for alcohol dependence or alcoholism is the prescription of a camprosate, disulfiram, or, or uh, naltrexone, which basically make it so you either get really, really sick from drinking or you don't feel the effects of drinking, so you're less likely to engage in drinking behaviors. Um, the effect of these drugs actually are very modest at best. And there's a host of cognitive therapies that you can also engage in, um, in the treatment of alcohol dependence. And again, that's, it's pretty modest outcomes. So in this study, which began in 2014, I was actually an intern there at the time um, and was there for the start of this. So it's really, really exciting to see this be published and be such a large study, but really exciting. Um, so the study began in 2014. Uh, the study medications used were psilocybin at 25 megs per 70 kegs, or diphenhydramine at 50 megs in the first session. And then for the second session, it was psilocybin 25 to 40 megs per 70 kegs versus diphenhydramine at uh, 50 to 100 megs. And this was again for the second session. So this followed patients through their first and second dosing day, and then through a 32 week follow-up period. What did they find? So they found that the percentage of heavy drinking days during that 32 week uh, follow-up period. And I forgot to mention here that this was a double-blind uh, study again. So both the participant and the clinician were blinded to what um, what drug group uh, the, the participant was placed in. During this 32-week period, the percentage of heavy drinking days for the psilocybin group was only 9.7% as compared to the control, the diphenhydramine group, uh, which was 23.6%. 
So there were significant differences between these groups, uh, and there was a significant decrease in the amount of drinking days that the psilocybin group engaged in as compared to the, the active placebo group, which is pretty incredible to note, right? This was also the largest psilocybin trial to date, to my knowledge, uh, and the results really held up. So in a similar vein to this, Matthew Johnson, in a study looking um, at the effects of psilocybin on smoking cessation, so uh, nicotine addiction and, and smoking addiction, found that two to three moderate to high doses of psilocybin, along with cognitive behavioral therapy, resulted in smoking cessation at a six-month follow-up period, and that this was significantly different from what you see with other medications or just cognitive therapy, uh, excuse me, cognitive behavioral therapy alone in the treatment of nicotine addiction. So these are just a few of the clinical works out there, right? And I very briefly touched on the outcomes, but even in these four examples, we can clearly see that psychedelics really are worthy of the attention that they're getting. You know, there really is potential here and vast implications in the field of psychiatry and um, for the future of psychiatry in general. And mind you, I'm talking in a purely uh, psychopathology oriented way, right? But these drugs are now being investigated for a lot more than things like anxiety, depression, substance use disorders, which are also no small things, right? Psychedelics are now also being investigated in the improvement of people's sex lives, in uh, traumatic brain injury treatment resulting from various different causes, right? Especially things like contact sports, like ice hockey, boxing, and, and so forth. In our own lab, we're actually investigating the effects of psychedelics on neuroinflammation. You know, a very broad range of indications here and a lot of invest very exciting investigations underway. Um, so now this is all very, very interesting, right? But I hope that you guys are sitting there uh, thinking to yourselves, wow, I have so much hope. <laughs> psychedelics are doing some really, really cool things, but how do they do these things, Armin? What's happening in the brain? What do we know about the effects of these drugs in the brain? Well, listener, what a great question you have. <laughs> Let me tell you that that is the million dollar question. And that is the reason that Elena and I are literally getting our PhDs. Um, because now that we see that there's a lot of hope with psychedelics, right, as the future for psychiatric treatment continues to grow and, and is added to and this rich body of literature is being formed. But to fully harness the potential of a compound of compounds such as psychedelics, we need to understand how they work at the most basic level and what they're doing to affect these incredible changes behaviorally in people, um, how they're doing that, right? Like at the level of the brain, at the circuit level, at the cellular level, at the molecular level. There has historically been a dearth of, of basic science research, but that is slowly being remedied. And Elena and I are doing our jobs to add to this body of literature. <laughs> so hopefully you get to read about some of our work uh, soon. So now I'm going to talk about two theories, hypotheses, or schools of thought, you can call them, uh, that exist in the field of psychedelics to explain how these drugs might be affecting the brain at the circuit level, the cellular level, and the molecular level to affect therapeutic benefit in the individuals that take them. Um, and we're going to start with the entropic brain theory. Originally published in 2014 and then updated again in 2018, Carhart-Harris proposed the entropic brain theory. And now stay with me here. I will break this down and explain after. The entropic brain theory states that psychedelics put the brain in a more entropic state to take the brain from a secondary consciousness state to a primary consciousness state. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, so let's start with entropy. What is entropy? 
So entropy is a measure of randomness in a system. So for example, we have a, two rooms. We have one room full, filled with little toddlers with a ton of colorful toys and loud music um, left to their own devices. That's going to be a very high entropy room. There's going to be a lot of randomness, a lot of craziness. Uh, compared to room two, which is going to be a room of adults in a nursing home, which should be low entropy, right? I mean, who knows? There are some crazy old people out there, but <laughs> in theory, that's a low entropy room, right? A lot more order, a lot less craziness as compared to the room with the toddlers, a lot more entropy. I hope you get my meaning here. Uh, so in terms of brain function, in the context of this theory, in normal waking life, we are in a state of secondary consciousness which is very organized, orderly thinking. Um, so low entropy. And as part of this theory, we know that parts of the brain actively work to decrease entropy and increase that order. So in terms of brain function, in the context of this theory, in normal waking life, we are in a state of secondary consciousness, which is very organized, highly ordered thinking. And there are actually parts of the brain that actively work to decrease entropy and increase that order because we can't have randomness in our connections all the time. That just sounds like a recipe for disaster, right? So our brain works to keep our entropy to a minimum during our waking hours so that we can focus on things and complete things in an adaptive and efficient way. In his theory, Carhart-Harris also compares entropy to the richness of our experience. So there's a trade-off here, right? So our brains are essentially working to diminish some of that richness in the environment in order to be able to efficiently and orderly think and process what we need to process. Our brain uses various regions referred to as the default mode network to actually decrease that entropy. Uh, we're going to have a whole episode on the default mode network and more of this theory. Uh, so no worries if you guys still have questions here. If you do, actually, it would be a great time to go to the blog um, or engage with us in at via email or whatever, however you want to get con in contact with us. Um, and let us know if you have any questions and I can try to work, uh, address them in, in the episode coming up. But OK, getting back to the theory. Uh, so now this hypothesis states that psychedelics take our brain from this secondary consciousness, this very orderly, uh, efficient secondary consciousness, and put it into a primary consciousness state, which is highly entropic. And this allows for all parts of our brain uh, to talk to each other. There's less activity of that default mode network here, right? Because the default mode network works to actively decrease that entropy. So now in this state, it's going to be less active because we have increased entropy. Um, and as a result of this, the lower order areas of our brain become more activated during this entropic state and therefore have the ability to share their information and make connections that they would not otherwise be able to make. Now, this is just a theory. And in science, a theory is neither proven nor disproven. There is simply evidence for or against a theory. Um, and in fact, in a slew of articles from Carhart-Harris using various functional MRI me uh, measures to determine the neural correlates of the psychedelic experience, we find that there might actually be some empirical evidence to support this theory. Um, across all of the studies, I'm just going to give you the quick TLDR, across all of the studies, um, there were marked changes in blood flow, blood oxygenation, and connectivity between brain regions under uh, the influence of psychedelics. 
Um, and again, I'm not going to delve into too much here because we're going to have a whole episode coming up in which we do a deep dive into these studies um, and look at sort of the nuances of these measures and the statistics. So stay tuned. Um, but here, this is a really big part of the basic research being done. And it's really, really exciting and adding to that rich body of literature that we hope to cultivate in psychedelics. So now this was one of the theories that I told you we were going to talk about. Now there's another, there's another big hypothesis in the field. And this is the neuroplastic hypothesis of psychedelic action. This hypothesis states that psychedelics might be affecting therapeutic benefit due to their action as psychoplastogens or drugs with the ability to induce synaptic plasticity. So what is synaptic plasticity? So now uh, when we learn something, say you're listening to this podcast, right? And you've just heard about this theory for the first time. Neurons in your hippocampus, which is a little structure deep in your brain, responsible for memory formation, is going to form new cells and it's going to make new connections to account for these new pieces of information that you've just learned. Now, if after today you're like, you know, to hell with this, I literally don't care, never want to hear about it ever again. Um, and you don't think about this stuff, you don't talk about it, you don't ruminate on it those connections that you made are going to get weaker. But on the flip side, if tomorrow you're like all jazzed about this and you can talk to someone else and the next day you talk to another person and you learn more things and you sort of build on the information that you've learned here, these new connections are going to become activated through those processes. They're going to become stronger and more likely to be there in the long term. So now this can be done in two ways. Way one is going to be structurally. So I just mentioned that there's going to be the creation of new cells, right? Well, there can also be the creation of these things called dendritic spines, which are tiny little nodules that are going to form on the arms of these neurons, these brain cells. So physically, they can make more connections, they gain greater surface area, they become bigger. Um, or way two, they can functionally increase in their plasticity. And that's going to involve um, more efficiency in the neurotransmission between cells. So how the cells talk to each other, it's going to be more efficient and it'll be done a little bit more easily. So now there is some empirical evidence to support this hypothesis as well. Um, and similarly to before, I'm going to keep this brief because we'll have a whole episode on psychedelics and plasticity uh, where I'll even talk about my work because this is literally the exact hypothesis um, that I'm testing directly with my work. So it's very exciting. This is something very near and dear to my heart. Um, but I'm going to talk about a paper that was published in Cell by Lai et al., uh, in which they examine the effects of psychedelics in vitro, so in cells in a dish as compared to in vivo, which would be in behaving animals. So this paper looks in vitro, and they found that there are increases in both structural and functional plasticity measures at both acute and post-acute time points, so short-term and long-term time points. So that was a lot. Um, how are you guys doing? I hope you guys are feeling good, and I hope you guys are feeling hopeful, um, because I definitely am. There's so much to be excited about here, and the future of this field is looking really, really bright. I think that as long as we stay critical and make sure we aren't giving into the hype and the sensationalism and are staying true to the research, I think that we really can uncover some untapped potential here. Uh, so with that, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. Uh, please subscribe, leave us a comment, tell us what you like, what you don't like, and if there are certain things that you want to talk about, and if you have any questions, whatever it may be. As always, check out the blog post for some more on today's episode. And with that, I'll catch you on the flip side. Uh, talk to you next time, guys. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.